Welcome to episode number six of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, smashing records in the UK, we speak with top British pilot Ed Downham about his spectacular flights while flying his unique 28-meter open-class glass glider from coast to coast and then some. Simon van den Eichel, a.k.a. Flying Simon, is a member of the Dutch junior team and he'll be talking about his soaring reading list. There's something for everyone from highly technical to easy reading. Also, we get an update on the Perlan Project's latest season of exploring the Antarctic wave system in southern Argentina. Chief pilot Jim Payne tells us about a strange weather phenomenon called sudden atmospheric warming. And on Gliding Club Confidential, the Gliding Club of Houston, Texas. Longtime member Ken Sorensen tells us what makes this club so special. That and a whole lot more on Episode 6 of The Thermal. Gliding records are being broken in many countries around the world. New high-performance gliders are giving pilots the ability and confidence to break numerous speed and distance records. In the UK, Ed Downham has been breaking records for many years, and 2019 has been a particularly good year for him while flying his open-class ASH-25 EB-28. I've reached Ed in tame England. Ed, welcome to the Thermal Podcast. Thank you. Now, Ed, just for the record, what is your total count of records that you actually own? Because I've looked online and I actually can't add them all up. Um, that's a good question. I think it's hovering the recent with the recent runs. I think it's hovering about um, sixteen or seventeen now. So you you've been at this for a little while. Yeah, I mean, I say I started off. Um, I think the first record I broke was when I uh, had a twenty-seven, um, and I've done some in. Uh, South Africa, uh, but mostly in the UK. Now, talk to me about this latest open class free triangle record that you broke this year. How did you figure that one out? Um, well, it hasn't been a, an amazing year for weather in the UK, but there's been a few days uh, which have been reasonably good and reasonably long. Uh, that was obviously Midsummer's Day, and um, it took a lot of figuring out and uh, a lot of uh, pre-planning and looking at the weather, looking at the charts, tweaking the size of the, and where it was gonna go, uh, looking at the weather. Uh, it probably took me several hours to do that. And I'm really glad it, I did in the end. Um, and also I, it, the uh, potential was there to do an even longer flight, um, but I'm glad I didn't uh, fall for that because I only just got back off this one. So really it was only about another couple of kilometers in it at the end. So how difficult is it to fit these kind of triangle flights in the geography of the United Kingdom? It's getting more difficult as the records get larger. Um, obviously, because there's uh, the coastal influence, airspace, which is seems to be increasing all the time, and our uh, sort of wet and soggy weather. So between all of those things, it makes it quite difficult. And there's often quite a bit of deviation you have to do to get around bits of airspace. Sometimes you can be let through it, sometimes not. Um, so yeah, it's quite getting more challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's still some uh, space left, but every time I break a distance record, uh, it's it's certainly more difficult to do than the last time. Now you had uh, somebody else aboard this flight with you, a gentleman by the name of Steve Kingham, from what I saw. Do you, yeah. Do you split the workload with him? How does how does that work? Um, he flew it for a bit, but he was—he hasn't even done his uh, silver distance yet, and happened to be just one of the few people who was at the club who wasn't flying that day. And uh, everyone said, "Oh, go and fly with Ed." And he was quite. I said, "Look, I'm going to do really quite a long flight and uh, working quite hard." Um, but he was quite happy with that, and uh, I talked my way around, explaining what I was doing pretty much all the time to him, and uh, he was soaking it up. Lucky so, man. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's great to have somebody you can bounce ideas off. Uh, and he was, you know, pretty intelligent guy. And uh, sometimes when you say something, afterwards you realize, actually, maybe I should be doing something different when you verbalize it. So mm -hmm. um, it's good like that. And uh, we did, we discussed what we were doing, and he didn't understand. I explained it. And in, in the course of that explanation, um, sometimes I would rethink what I was doing. So, yeah, it was re really good to have him along. Now, on this particular triangle flight that you did, this record-breaking flight, what was the point in the flight that you thought maybe it's not going to work out, or, or was it just clear sailing all the way? 
it was um, a day of many parts, as we say in the UK. And it, you know, it started started um, reasonably, you know, sort of lot, quite a long glide out, but into an obviously storable sky. And the cloud base stayed quite low for a bit, but there were but there were thermals, and then we got increasing amounts of spread out. Uh, which meant I'd had to do a few cloud climbs just to stay connected with the lift. Uh, there was a sort of really good patch for about an hour in the middle where we were racing, and then after that the the clouds got more and more and more more and more spread out, more and more overcast, and uh, probably about 100k out it was looking really quite dire, and we were just going anywhere just to survive, and that's where having uh, you know 28 meter glider and you can. You know, flying it slowly and just grinding around in really weak lift, and uh, we eventually made it back. But uh, I think uh, we only had about four or five hundred feet margin, so we wouldn't have gone much further. Hmm. Now, twenty-eight meters—that's just a little bit of wing on a glider. Talk to me about this this open-class ship. Uh, the one I've got—it's um, sort of a hybrid. Uh, it started off life as the wings of an Ash twenty-five. And the um, Binder factory heavily modified the outer panels, and the fuselage is a carbon fuselage from the EB28 edition, uh, and the two things are mated together. So it's really quite a hybrid glider, um, and it's also self-launching. So it's got their uh, self-launching unit in it, and that's for record breaking. I think that really, really helps quite a lot. Be able to put yourself exactly where you want in the sky and when uh, at the start of the flight. Uh, we don't often use it for returning home because the performance of the glider is so good and we don't fly into unsoarable conditions. But at the beginning of the day, just be able to start like I did on this flight remotely um, is a real help. When you say start remotely, so you took off from your airfield and then went to a different point and that's where you, you officially started from? That's correct, yeah. I started a triangle along a leg. Um, because there's quite a lot of airspace around the uh, club where I fly from, um, that it, it wouldn't have been that good. It, well, it added quite a bit of distance to try and start and finish at the club and put in a lot of unnecessary restrictions in. Uh, and also I was trying to align the, the track on the way out and the way back um, so as not to be caught by sea air and to go directly downwind at the start. So there was quite a lot of optimization there. Can you describe this triangle? Many of us have, have been to England, or we know what it looks like from uh, from our atlases. You're located just north of London, your club. Talk to me about the, the triangle. Yeah, it's our club is um, pretty much probably about 30 miles northwest of London, uh, just on the edge of the airspace for the London airports. And if you can imagine, um, if we set off... Uh, past Cambridge and then out towards the southern part of East Anglia and then head up uh, sort of north northwest past the uh, wash. I mean, say so with a triangle of this size, you obviously end up near the coasts a lot of the time. And that took us over the River Humber, up past Hull, and then to the north uh, coast, the North York Moors, and then a long leg down to the southwest uh, between uh, Manchester and uh, East Midlands and Birmingham down to um, Wales and then returning from that area towards the um, sort of Milton Keynes, which is right. where we finished. Huh. Now, when you're on these long flights like this, are you able to enjoy it, do a bit of sightseeing, or are you really busy in the cockpit all the time? It depends. On some days, you know, you're working the sky um, pretty much all the time. But when you've, like for instance, when we did some of the cloud climbs, there were some long glides out in fairly still air uh, with not much to go for. So we're just flying in a straight line. And then, yes, you can uh, have a good look out and a chat and look out at the scenery, mm -hmm. uh, especially on the coast, because, you know, it's really quite pretty. And it was over the North York Moors. Right. Yeah. So, yeah sounds uh, yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes for relaxation, but you've always got the uh, sort of clock running. And I like every about every hour or so just to do a sanity check that um, I'm actually it's possible to carry on with the task. Uh, mm -hmm. How much distance we've got left? How much time we've got to do it? How are the conditions? Because uh, yeah, if it's if it's possible, then I'll carry on. But if it's become impossible, there's no point sort of struggling to the bitter end, really. 
But what is it about these record flights that you find so appealing? Uh, it's just finding out, uh, but it's sort of you know pushing yourself as hard as you can, and uh, you don't know what the uh, limit is until you find it. Really, you know, you don't know what how how long a flight you can do until you've used the entire day from from the beginning to the end. I, mean, I don't always fly like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's something about taking. Yes, I mean, I quite enjoy doing a, a short racing task as well, but. There's something about using the first thermal of the day and the last thermal of the day and seeing it evolve uh, throughout that period. Um, it's something quite fascinating about that. So dawn till dusk, that kind of thing. Now you you do you mentioned earlier you've got all sorts of records in in the UK for your for your gliding, both speed and, and distance and triangles. What is the key to your success? You think for what sets you apart from some of the other glider pilots? Uh, well, at the moment, I think I've got a really good glider for doing this sort of thing, um, and having a being like I was saying before, uh, self-launching um, in terms of record breaking, I think that's that's that really mm -hmm. that really does work. I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh, it's because you've got an engine and you can fly off into nothing and then light the engine up," but at that point, the flight has effectively failed in terms of record breaking, so it it, it doesn't really help very much. Uh, but I say it's the beginning. I think it's the beginning of the day where it's quite an advantage. Mm -hmm. And I've probably, I'm just adding a logbook at the moment. But I've probably done about four thousand hours soaring, and so that helps a bit. Yes, I would think. Now, earlier on, you mentioned about preparation. Have you? Do you spend a lot of time plotting these flights out so when the conditions are right, you essentially it's already downloaded in your computer. You know what you're going to do. Is that is that a big part of this? Um, well, I say, I mean, I do, I do sit home sometimes and think, right, how would I do this and sort of play around on CU and all that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, to get a rough idea and then sort of plan it out in my mind, maybe work out, um, what speeds I'd need to fly and how much of a day I would use and what tactics I would use to get around bits of airspace or, or, you know, the, uh, weather tactics. Um, but I think you can actually get too fixed an idea. And I know people who decide the night before what task they're going to fly. Mm -hmm. I've got a rough idea, but I wait until the, the latest weather in the morning and then just tweak it um, to, you know, till it looks right. You, on, these, on these long flights, do you have any, any cockpit management tips, anything that you'd recommend for other pilots that are trying to do these long distances? Um, well, I'd say work up to it. because uh, we're gonna fly for nine or 10 hours uh, you don't want to exhaust yourself in the first five and then have it, have, you know, be mentally and physically drained. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's not going at 100%. Um, obviously, they always say, you know, staying hydrated, very important. You know, I'm normally have a camelback or two and just sipping water or actually sort of cut down energy drinks. I find that helps. And uh, when I'm flying in South Africa, I have the oxygen all the time, even at on ground level, just to keep your brain on, you know, top top performance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're just taking it easy, and the longer the flight, the you know, the more conservative you really need to be, especially with distance, because one grovel for twenty minutes or half an hour is going to make a mess of it. Uh, rather than a shorter racing task, when you could be a bit more aggressive. Especially if you're going for a speed record, you need to be more aggressive. But on a long flight like this, you're trying not to make too many mistakes. Hmm. But that does make sense, and I think even on some of my shorter cross distance or cross country flights, I'll take that advice to heart. <laughs> um, the season's winding down for you in the UK right now. I I know you mentioned earlier you're heading up to Scotland for some wave flying, but uh, what are your next uh, goals? Do you have any big distance flights in mind for next year, or maybe still this year? Um, well, I'd like if, if there's some decent wave up in Scotland, and the, the weather hasn't been great up there this year so far. We've done some, there's been some wave flying, but nothing massive. Um, last year, I managed to do a, a thousand K up in Scotland, and the year before, uh, I'd like to do that, but uh, you only have a limited amount of time up there until it gets the days get so short you can't really do anything. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's still a window, and I'd like to do some decent distance. Um, and then uh, in November, December, I'm going out to South Africa, uh, hopefully to uh, maybe have a go at a few records there, possibly. That sounds great. I will uh, 
keep a lookout on the OLC for some of your flights and see if you break any more records in the next little while. Ed, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you uh, for giving us some insight into your flying. Oh, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Ed Downham spoke to me from Tame England. If you want to get a good idea of Ed's flight, check him out on the OLC. On a later episode of The Thermal, Ed will tell us about his club, the London Gliding Club based at Dunstable. Twenty twenty marks the twenty-fifth anniversary of the first international vintage sailplane meet at Harris Hill in Elmira, New York. In nineteen ninety-five, I took my nineteen forty-two LK ten A across the border to join the fun. It's a great place to fly, and the gliders are amazing. Whether you're into wood or glass, there's something there for every pilot. I'll be heading south again next summer. The dates are July fourth to eleventh, twenty twenty. Hope to see you there. Look for the yellow and blue LK with Canadian registration and say hello. And also make sure you stick around because later in this podcast, we'll be getting an update on the Perland Project and their latest fine adventures in southern Argentina, where they've been coming across a very strange weather phenomenon. Simon van den Ankel is a young Dutch glider pilot and engineering student at Delft University. He's passionate about gliding and has his own YouTube channel called Flying Simon. He recently published a piece on gliding literature. Some books I've heard of and even read. Others were new to me. I've reached Simon in Delft, the Netherlands. So Simon, before we get into your five gliding book picks, tell me a little bit about yourself and your, your love of gliding. How did you get into it? I think I fell in love with, with, well, with aviation, I would say, when I was about 12, 13 years old. And I always had this dream of, of getting my PPL and, and flying these, uh, these aircraft. But you could only do it when you when you were 16. So then my, my physics teacher actually told me that you can already start gliding uh, once you're 14. Uh, so I, I immediately went to my local gliding club. And, uh, and from there, it, uh, I think it got me and uh, it never left me. So where are you now in your, in your gliding career? Well, I, um, uh, I'm already flying for about 10 years now. And um, uh, I'm doing a lot of cross-country flying, a lot of competition flying. And I'm actually training to do the Junior Worlds in uh, in 2021 in Czech Republic. Oh, that so, sounds uh, great. Yeah. So I saw your uh, book picks on your, on your YouTube channel, and I thought they were great. So let's talk about the gliding books that you recommend. And what's, what's number one on your list? I think number one in my list has to be Competing in Gliders, Winning with Your Mind by, uh, by uh, Brigadori, by Leo and, and uh, Ricky Brigadori. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, I, in, in the video, I said that they are brothers, which is a huge mistake because obviously they're father and son. But it is my, my absolute favorite because um, contrary to what some other books do, so really describing the, um, uh, the technicalities of flying, um, this book is really about all the aspects of flying. And it, I think it triggered something in me as well. Uh, so what they explain is that in order to be a good pilot, you not only have to fly really well, you also have to have a, a good strategy, uh, make sure that you are mentally prepared for the for the competition, but also physically prepared and and eat uh, eat healthy. Uh, so it really triggered something in me to to get all these things uh, in line and train in every aspect, so to say. And these authors are from where? Sorry. And these oh, they're from Italy. They're, they're from Italy. It, yeah. Okay. They're very well-renowned um, competition pilots. And have you met them? No, I've never met them. So unfortunately, uh, Leo has passed away a few years ago, uh, and Ricciardo is still flying around. So I hope to see him one day at one of the uh, World Championships, maybe. Now, has this book been translated into English? Yes, it has been translated into English, uh, but that is a small remark. I think it has been translated by an Italian guy who wasn't necessarily a glider pilot. So sometimes uh, it's a bit difficult to get through it, but uh, I, I think it adds to the fun, probably. Okay, let's move on to number two on your list. A book that really helped me is uh, Streckensegelflug by, by Helmut Reichmann. So uh, that is a book that really uh, goes into detail on, uh, on the technicalities of flight. Now, so, that's um, a very old book now too, but it still it stands the test of time. Yeah, it, it, it's, it really does. And definitely when you're just starting to do your cross-currency flights or, or when you get, want to get into competition flying, 
um, it can be really a, a great book just to, to give you the basics of, uh, of centering a thermal, finding a thermal. Um, yeah, it can, it can definitely help. And I think it, it's also his book that gives you some, um, some local practices. So uh, in, most of the time I would do uh, cross-country flights and then I, I feel like I was learning something and then in these local flights, uh, I think I was just having fun. And then Reichmann also gives you some some tricks to um, uh, to learn even on these on these local flights. And I thought that was really really useful back in the day. Right, real real not just academic stuff, but actual practical information that you can apply to your own flying. Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, well, for example, he said uh, every pilot has a weak turn, so uh, maybe when you're flying locally, you should only do your weak turn. So only fly to the left or only fly to the right. Uh, practice your final glides, for example. These, uh, these small exercises you can do, and that can help you during a, uh, a competition. Yeah, absolutely. All right, number th- number three, or I know we've, we're talking about five books, and we're not exactly putting them in a list. But th- what's number three on your on your chat today? I think uh, uh, I think we should talk about the soaring engine then, probably. So it's a uh, I think it's one of the newer books written by uh, by G Dale. And um, in that book, he, he uh, describes some of the, the more complex systems, I would say. So it's also about the, the flight technicalities, but then he has these, these complex systems in the mountains. Uh, and he has two volumes, two different volumes that explain uh, different phenomena. And uh, what is great is that he's using all his experience from Amerima. So he was flying in, uh, in New Zealand and um, he has used that experience to write the book. And it's, it's really a, a fun read. And um, I think if you're a bit more experienced, uh, then these complex cases can can help you a lot. So it, it's not a an academic read that's full of facts and figures. It's actually a, a read that you put you in the cockpit. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it does, hmm. which is uh, which is quite nice. And is there anything in particular a, a takeaway from that uh, series that you like? Well, yeah, there are a lot of takeaways, but I always think it's. So there's always like small things in this in this in this literature, and I think um, that pretty much uh, holds for all these books. Um, there are many things in there that you that you know already. There are many things in there that you don't know, but it's what you do with the information. So um, you can just read it, and then uh, it will probably leave your mind one day. Uh, but you have to fly it and then test things out and see if it actually works. So uh, I know that there are some things in there about. Um, how a, uh, a lake can sometimes tr- trigger a thermal, uh, and it, it only works if you're during a flight, see a lake, fly to it, and then actually see if the theory fits with your um, with your literature. Yeah. Right, right, right. Putting uh, information into practice. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's one of the most important parts because with just reading, it won't make you the best pilot ever. Of course not. Okay, number four. Now let's talk about. Uh, Sebastian Cava then, so the most accomplished glider pilot of all time. He has how many glider championships? 15 or something? I'd have to go look it up, I, but yes. It We're is, talking it the is pinnacle quite of enormous. gliding com- competition, yes. Yes, yes, he's, uh, he's, uh, he has at least has the most, the most medals of all, of all pilots. And he wrote Skyfall of Heat. So it's sort of an autobiography, uh, but it's really a, a fun read as well, I would say. So if you're just on, on holiday, then it's... Uh, a great book to pick it up, pick up, maybe a good Christmas present as well. But uh, I read this book, uh, I think, last summer, and I went through it in in just three days, I think. Now that's also translated into English. I th- yeah, I think he wrote it in English, I guess. Okay. So it's really, uh, I, I would say, it's also one of the more accessible books. Uh, so for the others, uh, I think they're a bit harder to uh, to get your hands on, uh, but this one is is still quite accessible. And what it does greatly, it, it explains his his career sort of. Um, so he starts with uh, with his sailing career. So apparently he, he sailed for about ten years before uh, before gliding. Um, and then he also explains about the the early days. So when he had to to pick a glider up uh, sometimes one day before the competition uh, and drive it somewhere else so that he can actually fly. So what about that book that that sticks in your mind? Is there anything in particular, a particular story, or style of flying that you got from that book? Well, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the mystery of, of Sebastian Kawa. So, because what I don't understand is uh, every time I look at, at soaring spots during the World Championships, you always see him rise to the top. And it's always 
quite early, uh, and I still don't understand how how he does it. And probably even if you are um, are are the best pilot ever, then still you wouldn't win so many competitions. So he must have a, a trick or two, or a or, or a great secret uh, that he's the best pilot. And I'm trying to figure it out through the book. And I think that one of his one of the things that you see is that he is really observant. So um, also on the training days, he tries a lot of things. Uh, and next to that, he has a lot of experience. So I think that's two things that really, really help him in his, in his competitions. Hmm. All right. Uh, your last pick. Yeah. Which, what is the last one? I, I don't think. know. Number five. Oh, I, know, I, know, I know that's the last one. So the last one is a, is a German book. Um, it's called uh, Meteorologie für Segelflieger. See, that's why I didn't say it the first time around because I saw <laughs> I saw the title there. But uh, yeah, yeah, German is is also for me. It's quite hard, but uh, uh, indeed. So it's a it's a it's a German book, and I haven't actually read this myself. Um, but uh, we do read these. So I'm in the in the Dutch junior gliding team as well. Mm-hmm. And what we'd like to do what we'd like to do during the winter is is pick some books, read them, and see if we can have any uh, any interesting information from it. And um, there was another guy who, who read this book, uh, the former junior world champion, actually. And um, he got some, some real great insights from that book. So luckily, he's a bit better in German uh, than I am. But we had a, uh, a quite lengthy discussion, I would say, um, about this book. Because one of the things that it, uh, it describes is that a thermal isn't necessarily a, a temperature difference. So the temperature difference is only about... Uh, 0.02 degrees or something. It's it's really a small margin. That it's more about, uh, about the air that is within that uh, within that uh, thermal column. Uh, so we had a, a lengthy discussion, and uh, we're still not sure. Um, but it's interesting interesting to see what books can do and that they can uh, light up a discussion in a second. So give me the name of that book again. So it's called Meteorologie für Zegelflieger, written by Henry Bloom. So let's hope that gets translated into English at some point so the rest of us can enjoy it because uh, my, my Dutch is okay, but my German is pretty much non-existent. So <laughs> I think I'd have a hard time with that, but it sounds great. So Simon, before yeah. I let you go on this, this is, uh, love talking about these five books. I'm sure we're gonna generate some discussion on the show about this, but I've got one I'm gonna recommend to you. I'm only halfway through it, um, but it was cool. recommended to me by the man, Tony Furman, who did all of the weather forecasting for the Pan American uh, gliding championships here in Ontario last summer. It's a book called The Weather Machine, A Journey Inside the Forecast, and it's by somebody called Andrew Blum. Halfway through it, but it's really fascinating. Look at the history of uh, weather forecasting and how it was all set up, and uh, I think there's something in there for uh, for every glider pilot because, as we both know, weather is critical for us. Sounds great. So I'll send, I'll send you a link to that, and I'll also put up a whole bunch of links for those other books that you mentioned up on uh, the uh, the Facebook page for the Thermal Podcast. And then uh, hopefully some other listeners will let me know what they think is a, is a great gliding book that we haven't spoken about. And we'll, uh, we'll do a little literature book review uh, on gliding on a regular basis. So thanks again for chatting with me and uh, looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Simon van den Enkel spoke to me from Delft, the Netherlands. Check out his YouTube channel called Flying Simon. It's worth a visit. In episode number one of The Thermal, we heard from Perland Project Chief Pilot Jim Payne about the work being done in southern Argentina, where they're exploring the Antarctic wave system. In 2018, the team smashed the world altitude record for gliders, getting to 76,124 feet. Their goal is to reach the edge of space and study how giant stratospheric mountain waves impact our planet's weather. Mission 1 proved that the highest mountain waves could open the door to the edge of space for gliders. Mission 2 wrapped up earlier this fall. I reached Jim Payne at his home in Minden, Nevada. Hello, Jim. Good to speak with you again. Um, When we spoke in the spring, there were high expectations going into the 2019 season. How how did things work out for you guys? Well, everything worked out uh, very well, except for the weather. Right. The sailplane uh, flew very well. And in fact, we came back without any mandatory upgrades on our uh, shopping list, so to speak. 
the polar night jet suffered something that they call sudden stratospheric warming. It right. happened in uh, 2002, and a small one happened in 2010 in the southern hemisphere. Apparently, it uh, happens on a regular basis in the northern hemisphere. But the effect is when uh, the upper atmosphere warms is the polar night jet or the polar vortex that we need to cause the strong winds in the stratosphere. Right. It causes the winds to die off. And when the winds die off, of course, the wave doesn't propagate as well as it uh, did, say, last year. We did fly to 65,000 feet, which is the third highest glider flight ever. And in a normal campaign would be considered excellent success. But since we were trying to get higher than that, um, for us, it was, uh, hate to use the word disappointment, because everything went so well, we, we can't uh, complain about the support the Argentines gave us. We can't complain about the sailplane. But it, but it's not all about getting height records, right? I mean, you, you guys are also doing scientific research. And actually, because of the sudden stratospheric warming, we gathered a lot of data that should be helpful to the scientists. We had weather balloons, so we were able to launch, I believe, 29 individual weather balloons spaced out over a three-week period. And from these balloons, we have temperature profiles and wind profiles, humidity profiles at high altitude. And those data should be able to help uh, scientists better understand this uh, sudden stratospheric warming phenomenon. I mean, this is one of the few corners left in the meteorological world that the, the scientists and the boffins don't really understand yet, right? So the work you're doing is, is really helping out with this. Absolutely. In fact, there are very few weather observations that far south. You know, the only land masses at 50 degrees south is basically southern Argentina. Right. And that's one problem with the models. You know, all of the models that the scientists have developed for modeling the weather and the climate, they're all based on initial conditions in the northern hemisphere where there are many, many observations. The models are actually, at least the weather models, have been very good. Hmm. In the southern hemisphere, we would look at the model data and compare it with the satellite pictures. And for instance, there was one day the low pressure was like 400 nautical miles different from what the model showed based on the satellite photo. Hmm. Now, this sudden stratospheric warming, I've read it described on your website uh, you know you're trying to get the the, the 90,000 feet height you're, you want to get last year the the conditions were more of a, a fast up elevator and the Im impact of the sudden stratospheric warming means it's more like a, a slow escalator is that a good analogy that's a very good analogy and it doesn't go near as high mm -hmm. for instance uh you know the flight to uh, 65,000 feet this year it took us over four hours to get to the 65,000 feet. And it was a very, very slow climb, where right. last year we were averaging 800 to 1,000 feet a minute. So a huge difference. And then the big difference was the wind speed. Mm -hmm. Last year, the wind speeds at uh, you know, 65, 70,000 feet were on the order of 150 knots. This year, it was more on the order of uh, 90 or 100 knots. Does that make it easier or more difficult to stay in the lift? Well, our true airspeed goes up as we gain altitude. So we're still flying at a very low indicated airspeed. Mm -hmm. So in terms of climbing, I prefer the stronger winds because of the stronger lift. Right, 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 right. That would make sense. So I read as well that you had a number of improvements done on the glider in the 2018-2019 winter season up here in the Northern Hemisphere. How did uh, some of those improvements work out on the aircraft itself? Oh, they were excellent. The biggest improvement was the instrumentation system. Mm -hmm. Last year, we were using a laptop to record our flight test data. Right. And on our most critical time, the laptop died on us. So this year, we had a... Oh, no, I can't imagine rebooting it, you know, 70,000 feet. <laughs> exactly. This year, we had an onboard recorder that recorded all the data that were on the data bus from startup to landing or after landing. Mm -hmm. So we captured uh, a lot of data. There was one day when the winds were forecast to basically be nil all the way to 40,000 feet. So 
we actually took a tow on that day so we could do glide performance data during a descent. Mm-hmm. And all the way down, most of the way, the winds were less than five knots. So we gathered a whole bunch of great information on the performance of the airplane. Now, that really is unusual for that part of the world, right? I've been, I've been down to El oh, Calafate, and the wind there is usually, if it's not windy, it's extremely rare, right? Exactly, especially at altitude. Huh. So, uh, now, I read about a few other things as well. You've got a, a, a different uh, system set up to avoid frost over your, your windows in the aircraft? Yeah, we modified the plenums that are underneath the, we call them the eye windows, the two windows in the front. Those are critical windows for uh, takeoff, landing, and uh, in flight. Mm-hmm. So uh, we basically have a plenum there which is sealed off, and we have some uh, small electrical heaters in there with small fans on them to uh, circulate the air. And that was another big success. Um, we're now able to keep the windows on the front uh, pretty much frost-free during a flight. Right, because also the last thing you want is, is obstructed vision going forward if you can't get rid of that frost when you're landing. Exactly, exactly. And I also read there was now a camera installed, I think, on your on your main landing wheel looking forward just in case that does happen. Is that right? Yes. Um, although we don't really want to rely on the cameras. And uh, we've always been able to clear the windows before landing, so mm-hmm. we have needed to use the camera for landing. Right. But uh, it, it is nice to have that camera there. It gives us another view of uh, the outside now, I was looking at some of the photographs that were published about this year's mission, and I saw one of your your colleagues there working on what was described as an air scoop, but to me it really looked like a plastic water bottle that had been cut up. What what was that about? It's kind of interesting. We dress so that we can stay warm at altitude, and even though it might only be 35 or 40 degrees Fahrenheit or just a few degrees above zero centigrade on the ground, because we're dressed warm, um, we normally kind of overheat early in the flight. Mm-hmm. What we do is we take off unpressurized, and the rear hatch, we lower it so that there's a small gap, and we put this plastic water bottle, which has been cut to uh, form a scoop, in the <laughs> gap. So it scoops in air, so it circulates air in the cabin uh, during climb-out. At about 12,000 feet, what we do is we take the scoop out and we push the rear hatch up. The front hatch is already sealed and the hatch seals and it just traps the air in the cabin. And that's our initial pressurization. So by the time we get to 14, 15,000 feet, we have a good differential between the inside and the outside. And then we just turn our pressurization system on and from then on it automatically keeps the cabin altitude where we want it. But it, but in the end, a cut-up plastic water bottle has helped you guys maintain the right kind of environment you want in in the cockpit. Absolutely. Yeah, when it's, <laughs> when it's cut right, I get a little breeze up in the front, which feels good when you're warm. It's one It's one of those little things. It doesn't cost a lot of money, but it works, right? Oh, man. You, you've got it. So, so finally, is there one particular flight or, or moment that stands out for you from the last uh, season's flights? Well, I think... Our high flight, where we got to 65,000 feet, just because it was a challenging flight in that the lift was not very strong. Mm-hmm. So it required good piloting technique, and it required co- cooperation with the folks on the ground. You know, they're seeing satellite pictures and other information that we're not able to see in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. And they're feeding that cockpit uh, information back to us. Yeah. I sure wish I could uh, get that view that you guys get from the cockpit. Now, what are the plans for next year? Well, for this next season, we need to raise a little bit of more money to uh, cover all the costs. So uh, it'll really depend on funding. We will try some flights in the Sierra this year since the airplane won't be down for any upgrades. Mm-hmm. So if we have a good uh, day in uh, probably down towards Inukern which is uh, north of Mojave. Um, we'll go down there and try a high flight. We wouldn't expect to get much above 50,000 feet in th- that area just because the winds die off at that latitude once you get above the triple pause. Mm-hmm. But there would be potential to get to 
an altitude where he claimed the North American altitude record. That would be a good goal. Now, you just mentioned uh, fundraising. Are you guys, nobody gets paid. This is all volunteer. Talk to me about fundraising and how people can donate to this project. Well, um, the best way for small donations is to go to our website, perlinproject.org. And there's a link in there where you can make a donation. And there's also links in there where you can contact our CEO. So if someone wanted to be a major sponsor and uh, join the project, uh, contact uh, the CEO, Ed Warnock, and we'll be more than happy to uh, work with them. And, and every dollar counts, right? Even if some young pilot can donate $10, that's great. Yes, sir. That would be most appreciated. Well, Jim, listen, safe flying. I, I look forward to hearing about uh, your flights in California. Uh, hopefully that you can break that North American record, and we'll, we'll stay in touch. And uh, good luck and stay safe. Thanks, Harry. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Pearland Chief Pilot Jim Payne spoke to me from Minden, Nevada. If you want to find out more about Jim's flying adventures, check out his blog at soaringblog.tumblr.com. That's soaringblog.tumblr.com. There are regular updates on the Perland website, which is perlandproject.org. It's also where you can go to donate to keep this fabulous project going. That's perlandproject.org. Now a quick note about our sponsor, Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation, and software needs. Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp. He's a world-class competition pilot and knows what he's talking about. So get in touch with him at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your gliding needs. That's foxonecorp, all one word, dot com. This month on Gliding Club Confidential, the Soaring Club of Houston. Ken Sorensen is a longtime member of the club. He's also an experienced contest director, world-class pilot, and past chairman of the Soaring Association of America. I've reached Ken in Houston, Texas. So Ken, where exactly is your club located? It's the Soaring Club of Houston, and as the name would imply, we're near Houston. We're about 45 miles northwest. Uh, the closest small town is the town of Waller, W-A-L-L-E-R. Uh, the area where we are, the club is located in an area that's flat. Uh, it becomes slightly hilly as you go north and west. Uh, we can't go east because that's where Houston is. So it's uh, agricultural uh, and basically either flat or just rolling hills. And talk to me about the gliding conditions. What kind of conditions? Do you get high? How far does it go? Yeah, well, it's all thermal soaring. Uh, we don't have anything that makes waves um, and uh, no ridges. And so at the thermals in the summertime, typical thermal ground elevations, about 300 feet, and typical elevation or heights in the summertime would be anywhere from five to 7,000 feet. On good days, on less good days, it's sort of three to 4,000 feet. The terrain is, is benign enough that you can go cross-country here at 3,000 feet uh, without, you know, without any problem. There are a lot of little airports and, uh, that are within range, and so we'll frequently have flights where people just sort of airport hop. So describe the, the gliding field to me. How many runways paved? Is it just grass? Uh, what, what's the club like? Well, we, we, we own our own field. Uh, it's a grass field, and it's uh, 30 300 feet long and well, probably five, 600 feet wide. Uh, the property itself is larger than that, but that's the mm -hmm. runway area. So grass, one, we, we operate as if there were three runways side by side on this one large grass strip, but they're not marked. So it's essentially one big wide runway. And how many members in your club? I think we're about uh, 100, 180, 170, 170 to 180 seems to be fluctuating in that range for the last several years. That's a substantial size. Yeah, no, it is. The club has an interesting history. It was started in 1975 or so, and uh, an interesting couple of interesting points in the development of a club, and this is, uh, is valuable information for other clubs that, that are thinking about growing. We moved, in 75 we started, in 81 we moved to an airfield that was that was not owned by us, but we were the only 
uh, activity on the airfield. It was a private airstrip. And that allowed the club to grow to a size of about 80 members. And then in 1996, we moved to the location that we're at now. And very shortly after having our own dirt so that we could put up our infrastructure hangars and all this, uh, uh, the development that goes with owning your own property, we grew to about 150 members. Hmm. And then another interesting interesting uh, development was in 2008, we put up a clubhouse that was a nice building, you know, a metal building with a porch and a kitchen and showers and all that stuff. Before that, we'd had uh, a mobile home that was okay, but not great. And once we put up the clubhouse, again, there was another big bump in club membership, and we kind of went up to 180, having a nice place for families to come out and hang out and for members to hang out, much like yeah, your club, the Sosa mm-hmm. Club, has beautiful facility with a nice clubhouse. Those are owning your own dirt and having a nice clubhouse seem to be key elements to a a large club. Absolutely. Now, talk to me about the kind of aircraft your club owns and operates and and the towing situation. Winching or tow planes, what do you do? Okay, it's all aero tows. Um, We have uh, three Pawnee tow planes, so single-engine tow planes, single-place, single-engine tow planes. We have, uh, let's see, we've got two uh, Blanick L23s, two-place, we have two Schweitzer 233s, two-place, and one ASK-21, uh, two-place, and then we have a couple of single-seat airplanes, a, an L-33 and a PW-5. Hmm. And, and the, the club, long ago, the club kind of pointed members in the direction of, of uh, forming syndicates to buy airplanes owned by, you know, two or three or four club members. And uh, one of the things that's fairly unique, I think, about our club is that the club made available property on the on the club property for private hangars, and we have oh, probably 20 or more uh, private hangars that are on the club property. The club leases the rights to the dirt to the hangar owner, but the hangar owner is responsible for building the hangar and keeping it up. But by doing that, it uh, it has caused um, a number of members to become essentially stakeholders in the club more than they would have been otherwise right. because now they've got some skin in the game in the, in the hangars. And those same members have tended to be those people who help run the club. They end up being club officers and active, very active members. And what are the annual fees like at your club? Well, let's see. The initiation fee now to join is uh, $400, uh, except for youth. Youth member is $100. And then monthly dues uh, typically are 45 uh, And again, youth is less at 15 Our toes, uh, for a 2,000-foot tow, it's $33. And then our rental rates are range from 12 dollars an hour to 36 dollars an hour 12 would be for the 233 36 for the k21 and can guests come and fly at your location uh they can um we have a the option of a of a weekday or or you know temporary membership in order to to get a tow in a private ship that the visitor has to be a member of an ssa club that has ssa insurance Right. So there's an insurance catch, but uh, other than that, uh, they're good to go. Finally, Ken, what's the best thing about uh, your club? Well, it's hard to pick on just one thing, but uh, the uh, our facility's great. Uh, the volunteers that we have, the club membership is is uh, really special. One of the things we've really tried to do a good job at is being social, so that when visitors show up. And club members alike, uh, you know, we try to to be welcoming and have a lot of social activities. Almost every um, Saturday evening, we'll have a cookout at the club where members will stick around and will barbecue and make a potluck dinner out of it. And part, and then also part of this, this is a big deal for for those of us that like to fly cross country and race, is that we have a very active cross country and racing program so that we, we have a strong training program, but once pilots are trained and are interested in flying cross-country, every 
essentially every weekend day we have a race. And so people have a chance to fly with each other and uh, and compete and, and learn. And then we do, we have pilots meetings every day, and then we have a debrief uh, the following morning and look at flight traces using uh, flight log analysis software like CU to let, right. help the newbies learn from the from the more experienced pilots. Well, Ken, it sounds like a great club. Next time I'm in that area, I will make sure I pop by, and uh, it, it sounds like there might be a nice big steak on a Saturday night as well. That's right. That's right. Come on, uh, come on a, on a Saturday and uh, expect to stay for dinner, and uh, and we'll get you up for a flight. Okay, Ken. Listen, thanks again. Talk to you later. All right. Thank you. Ken Sorensen spoke to me from Houston, Texas. To find out more about the Soaring Club of Houston, go to scoh.org. That's scoh.org. That's it for episode number six of The Thermal. I will be back again in early December with another show that will include a fascinating interview with Andrew Blum about his new book, The Weather Machine. We're also going to hear about a very special flight that happened in 1958. Andy Goff flew his glider from central England across the channel and into Holland. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes or Google Play and give me a review. If you don't like the podcast, well, don't bother. To keep this podcast going, I need to bump up the listenership, so please put out the word to your gliding friends. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.